Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. As we continue our partnership with the Whitechapel Society 1888 in releasing the guest speaker talks from their bi-monthly meetings, conferences and special events. What you are about to hear in the order of their appearance are the talks from the Whitechapel Society's Victims Conference, which took place on the 8th of September 2018 at Hanbury Hall, Hanbury Street in London's East End. So without further ado, let's turn it over to the event's MC, Philip Hutchinson, as he introduces the second speaker, Louise Raw, with a talk entitled Striking a Light, East End Women. Louise Raw is a historian and writer and resident historian for the Robert Elms Show on BBC Radio London, where she examines the lives of forgotten players of the capital's past. With a background in the trade union movement and political campaigning, she organises the annual Matchwomen's Festival and is the author of Striking a Light, the Bryant and May Matchwomen and Their Place in History. Her research on the matchwomen changed British Labour history, to quote Professor Mary Davis, proving that the strike was of immense historical importance, previously misinterpreted and neglected by historians. The true story of the wild and wonderful women of Bryant and May was far more interesting and colourful than the orthodox version. You may, of course, already be aware that the building has a direct link to this story, but no doubt there will be more on that to come. Louise has a popular monthly newspaper column in the Morning Star, the edition of Morning, titled of the paper is very important, and appears regularly on television. She's also been an on-screen contributor to the BBC series The Victorian Slum, Women and Power, and Who Do You Think You Are? Her work has also twice been referred to in Parliament. When asked where the £350 million for the NHS went, Jacob Rees-Mogg was obliged to point out he'd spent all of it trying to silence our next speaker. Uh, Bone match women, East London suffragettes, women at Cable Street in 1936, war workers, the women and girls of the East End have a long history of making history. Ladies and gentlemen, Louise Raw. Wow, what an introduction. I'm not sure I can quite live up to that. Um, yes, yeah, sorry for not being Joyce, but I'll do, <laughs> I'll do my best anyway. So what I want to talk about is women of the East End, as you say, but also what that means, what being an East Ender meant. Because actually, in the 1880s, that's a really new term. Obviously, the East End was there before the 1880s, but nobody called anyone an East Ender much before the 1880s. And it pops up in a music hall song first, as so many good things do. But East Ender was not a compliment. If someone called you an East Ender, then, then was fighting words. It was an insult to call someone an East Ender because of the Victorian notions of respectable and not respectable poor. Absolutely Victorian's favourite thing, dividing people up into respectable and not respectable, especially poor people and especially women. Victorian parlour game, if you like. So, as one commentator said, there are respectable poor people, just about, but if you have an East Ender over your threshold, watch out. Lock away the spoons and reach for the bug powder. So that tells you exactly how these poor people, poor people in both senses of the term, were being looked at. And the idea was, the idea develops really strongly during this period that the people of the East End, poor people generally, but the people of the East End are almost not quite human. They're somewhat subhuman. And you can see it. Charles Booth, when he was striding around the streets of London doing his poverty maps, said people say of this area in particular, which was an Irish East End area called the Fenian Barracks, known locally as the Fenian Barracks, which tells you a lot, that men here, women we don't even talk about, men here are not human. They are like wild animals. And he said... If the police try to arrest someone, there is always a fight. People barricade themselves in and they will throw chairs or iron or anything they can lay their hands on. So this idea starts to develop of the darkest East, the terrifying East End with its subhuman criminal population. Can you all hear me okay, by the way? I can't get this mic down, you know. I just can't do it. I'm a bit short. So the lack of professionalism, I'm sorry. After Lindsay's incredibly... (laughs) Too damn tall woman. After her incredibly professional presentation, just forget about your ideas of professionalism (laughs) because it's me now. 
Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Is that better? Can you hear me okay? So, this idea carries through this idea of people being less than, not quite human. And it carries through, it used to carry through a lot into the way people looked at the Ripper's victims. Doesn't really count. These are very poor women. They're just, they're just prostitutes, some of them. They're just poor working class women. They're kind of not real. We don't really have to worry about how they're represented. Hopefully that idea, well you'd like to think that idea had gone, but a couple of Halloweens ago, there was um, one of those immersive experience pop-up type thing that the millennials do that I don't really understand at all. And there was a huge poster in London of some match women advertising this event with their eyes scratched out. And I just thought, no. Not on my watch. I'm not having that. So I spoke to the company that was running it. They did remove it. But they were sort of doing, you know, who's next? You know, women are dying in the East End. Who's next? But match women were never ripper victims. So why? I think to them, when I spoke to the, um, the historian involved in the project, it just hadn't occurred to him. He's ever so young. He's about 11. He looks about 11 to me. But then everyone does. It hadn't occurred to him that these people's descendants might be around, that I might know them and that they might be really offended by seeing great-grandma with her eyes scratched out on a poster. And I said to him, do you want me to go and show this to her great-granddaughter? Do you? Is that what you want? No, no. And he took it down. But so this, you know, we still have to fight this idea that some people are less human, some people are somehow not real. The same thing, it turned out, really affected the narrative around these fabulous match women and their strike of 1888, right in the middle of the Ripper period. Such an important strike, it turned out. But that's not really the way it was told initially, and that has a lot to do with our perceptions of East End women, working class women. When I came to the strike... I was on a trade union labour history course. I went on the trade union labour history course because if I went on the trade union labour history course, I could get a day off work a month. So that's, I mean, that's not the only reason I did it, but that was a big motivating factor for me. I knew very little about labour history. I was involved in the trade union movement I, from a young age. I was working since I was 15. But I didn't know a lot about um, labour history, unfortunately. It wasn't taught when I was at school, which is pretty much in 1888, to be honest. It just, we, we did crop rotation. There were some kings and queens. Never quite understood what crop rotation was, but I know that we definitely covered that. And I decided to start researching the matchroom because, to be quite honest, they were the only women that got mentioned in the whole of labour history. It was like men doing things, labouring men, working men. And then, yes, yeah, some matchwomen did some stuff, and we better mention them because... The girls are going to get upset if we don't mention some women, so we'll bring in the match women. But it wasn't talked about as hugely consequential. Even some of the, the great, mainly manly historians who'd written about the match women, just a line or two, just, oh, yeah, some women went on strike, getting the dates wrong, getting the numbers of people on strike wrong. Um, one quite famous historian said, a few dozen girls went on strike. Well, mate, it was 1,400. That's a bit more than a few dozen. That's a lot of women. And it wasn't very important. They went on strike. No one really knows why. They just probably did it by mistake. Um, but nothing important happened until the dock strike of 1889, because then that was boys, you see. That was men going on strike. So then it counts. The dock strike is the beginning of everything. The whole modern trade union movement all traced back to 1889. And I did sort of think at the time, but if women did it first, does that not make it the start of the movement? But no, no, it was explained to me that it absolutely didn't. It didn't count until men did it. So I started researching it. And I was really curious about the way that it was taught um, as this strike that had been forced upon the match women. Really, almost literally, they'd gone on strike by mistake. Annie Besant, does it, have people heard of Annie Besant at all? Um, yeah, a Fabian um, friend of George Bernard Shaw, possibly a bit more than a friend, not one to gossip, but that's what, that's what was said, um, that she had led this strike. And I thought, well, that's curious. As a trade unionist myself who quite likes a strike and have been involved in a few, I thought that's very unusual that in British Labour history, a strike should be caused by, you know, a posh lady, basically, who didn't work in the factory, didn't know the workers, very different class background, basically going down to the factory gates because she'd heard about exploitation of women workers in the East End, which was appalling. And she was a, a campaigner, she was a socialist-ish, um, and she'd gone down to the factory gates to interview some of the women. 
And I thought, well, this is very interesting. So what happens from there? Does she just say, uh, I say, girls, um, I'm from the Fabian Society. We've had a bit of a vote. We've decided, for no apparent reason, really, we just felt like it, it was a Wednesday, um, that you're going on strike next week. Is that all right with you? And they will go, oh, yes, God bless you, Mum. Absolutely, Mum. will be there, Mum. I've worked with women from the East End. I know what the response to that would have been. I won't repeat it now. But it wouldn't have been absolutely Mrs. Besson will be there. So I thought, well, this is really interesting. I want to see what really happened. So I hit the history books. I went to the Bryant and May archive. Didn't really know what an archive was. Just as appalling, Lindsay, I know. Just sort of wandered in and they, they see, you know, put your bag in a locker. Do I have to put my bag in a locker? What's going on here? They brought me out all these boxes and I started rooting through it. And very quickly I thought, that's not how this happened. This is absolutely clear from the notes from some of the foremen of what I call the Bryant and May naughty list. They had a list of five women. They said, these are the troublemakers. These are the ones that started this here strike. And I thought, well, you can't have a strike that's organised from the outside, forced on workers from the outside, and started by troublemakers inside. You've got to pick one, haven't you? It's got to be one or the other. It's really strange. So I started, you know, chirping on about this and, and horrified some historians and some academics. Oh my God, this is feminist tokenism. This must be stopped. So I had to, having proved quite comprehensively that Annie Besant wasn't the strike leader, mainly because, not because I'm a genius researcher, but because Annie Besant said she wasn't. So to be fair, the clues were kind of there. If any of you remember that Shaggy song, It Wasn't Me, that's basically Annie Besant throughout the whole of 1888. I did not start this strike. I was not there. I was nowhere near the factory. It wasn't me. I did, I did think striking's a terrible idea. And I'm thinking, this is a bit odd. Here's this woman going, no way. Yep, yeah, she definitely led the strike. Yep, yeah, Annie Besant and the Match Girls. Yep, yeah, absolutely. I think the idea, we're back to our conception of East End women, the idea that young, and some of them were 11, Irish, very bad. If you, if you had to be an East Ender and a working class woman, don't be Irish as well. That was just, in the 1880s, that was just considered taking the piss, quite frankly. Um, that they could possibly have been political enough in any conception that we'd understand to have gone on strike. Just absolutely no way. Ridiculous idea. Someone middle class would have to come along and tell them, by the way, girls, you're exploited. No, are we really? Because we didn't realise just from the starving and the jaws rotting from white phosphorus. We didn't realise. We just thought we were having a fantastic time. So I started, I had to then go and prove that the match women were capable, genuinely this is true, capable of thinking politically, capable of going on strike. That was pretty easy with East End women. Not difficult to prove that they were capable of self-assertion. First off, when they went on strike, police were rushed into the area. Now, that I found very interesting. They're supposed to be these sweet little waifs and strays, and they've only gone on strike because Annie Besant said go on strike. Police leave is like cancelled across the country. Everyone rushes to the East End to take on these dangerous, threatening matchwomen. I think one reason for that is that the local police knew the girls very well, and they didn't interfere with anything the matchwomen did. I mean, the police said so. They said that when the matchwomen didn't get on, they generally got on really well, had amazing solidarity. But police said when they don't get on, they settle their disputes outside the factory with a fist fight. It's not ACAS approved. That is not a TUC approved method of industrial conciliation. I'll just put that proviso in right now. And they said, we don't interfere with them. No, we just sort of leave them to it. Well, I'm not surprised. Coppers in the East End had a shocking time of it. Poor things. Um, they were not, there was not a lot of respect between the law and the people of the East End, I have to say. Don't condone it. The streets were very dark in the East End. This is a really key factor, as you will, I'm sure you will all know. And what they used to do for entertainment, the EastEnders, because there wasn't a lot on telly in those days. EastEnders wasn't even on. So what they used to do was they'd, they'd look at the routes that the police marched, their beats, which were very you know, repetitive, and they'd see where they were going over manhole covers, and they'd <coughs> remove the manhole covers. So your poor police generally in pairs, because it was the East End, da, 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 bam, 
poor policeman down a manhole. It's not good, is it? And then sometimes the ascenders would come and put the manhole cover back on as well, with the poor bloke down there. I mean, they didn't leave them there indefinitely, I have to say. They did get them out eventually. So not surprisingly, the police had a healthy respect for the match women, the local police. So I suspect that's why they had to bring in police from outside, because the ascender police were going, no, you, you go and tell them not to go on strike. We're, we're good over here, thank you. We're absolutely fine. I looked at who these women were, and that was the most fascinating, if I was on the X Factor, I'd say part of my journey, if I was on a reality show, my journey through life with the match women, was understanding who they were as people. And one of my biggest clues, oh, I'm going to see if I can work the clicker now, Lindsay, I'm not sure about this. Is it easy? Please let it be easy. It's not, oh, Lindsay, nothing's happening. Yes, fabulous. Now, the match women loved a hat. I cannot overemphasize how much the match women loved their hats. And one of the things that gave me a great clue as to who these women were was a little aside I found um, in something I was reading about them, that they had a feather club. I thought, what is a feather club? It wasn't just a matchwoman thing, it was a factory, a factory last thing, but the matchwomen were really big on this. They, when they went out, even though they were so extremely poor, when they went out of a Sunday, they wanted to look amazing. They wanted to look absolutely killer. No one was going to look down on them when they promenaded up and down the Bow Road in their hats. But hats were expensive. They couldn't afford to have their own and probably had nowhere to keep them as well, given they were probably living in one sooty room with about 12 other people. So what they did was have a feather club. So you'd contribute whatever you could. You know, Elsie would come round of a, of a Friday and collect your pennies. When there was enough money for a hat, off they'd go to the milliners, choose communal hats. And there was a collection of hats that was shared. So if you had a hot date with a docker or a gas worker of a Saturday night up the music hall, you'd go and say, I want that hat. And they'd probably say, well, you'd be careful with it. Better come back in one piece. And you'd get your hat. And I loved this because... It's kind of in a small way, it's solidarity, it's sisterhood, it's kind of a cooperative thing. And that was something the women of the East End just always did in so many different ways. And you lived or died depending on how popular you were and whether people wanted to help you. If you were out of work and your mate across the tenement knew you were out of work, if you'd been all right to her, you'd get a knock on the door at dinner time, and one of her kids, let's say Billy, you know, number nine, Billy would be there. Oh, my mum's made too much stew today, and we can't use it. Can you use it? And they just subtly look after you and look out for each other. Really important. So I thought, well... We are not a million miles away from a real working class solidarity here that was just part of their lives. Why would they not have brought it into the factories with them? This is how they lived. This is how they survived. So what actually happened during the strike? The version that I had was really... Honestly, just Annie Besant told them to go on strike. There's Annie Besant looking fabulous. Look at that. Strike oppose Annie. Um, looking amazing. But the idea was that she just told them to go on strike and they'd just gone on strike. Now, obviously, the Bryants, um, the, the May family, had been pushed out by 1888, but the Bryant family loved that one because that's a great narrative for an employer. Oh, yeah, it's not that conditions are appalling at all. It's, conditions are fantastic. It's just that these naughty socialists, these argent provocateurs of the left, have come along and made them go on strike. Nothing to do with us. That's really, really convenient. So Bryant and May jumped on that. Um, immediately and really embrace that. So I had to really piece together what actually happened. So I got, I didn't know how to research, to be honest. Someone said to me at the Sorbonne, did you see how I threw that in really casually? At the Sorbonne, when I was speaking at the Sorbonne once, they never asked me back, but anyway, I was. And someone said, well, you, no, don't do the accent. Um, somebody said, well, your, your method, your research method is absolutely fascinating. You know, I can see a bit of this approach and a bit of that approach. And I'm going, okay. Um, so, what, what, you know, from which book, from which, um, from which researcher did you devise it? And honestly, I just made it up. I hadn't got a clue. I just thought, I'll look at everything I can. So I looked at all the local papers of the day, the national papers, and everyone's diaries, you know, George Bernard Shaw's journal, Annie Besant's journal, anyone, William Morris, anyone who was around at the time to see if I could work out exactly 
what had really happened and to track it down to one day and work back from there. And it seems to have gone a little something like this. Annie Besson wrote an amazing article about the women, a really um, emotional and angry piece in her own paper that she self-published called The Link. And she called it White Slavery in London, which is one hell of a title for so many reasons. There was a bit of an obsession, slightly overwrought, that white girls were being sold into foreign brothels. It was a bit exaggerated, but that was, a, that was one meaning of white slaves. The other one, it was used for sweated labourers. And I like to think that Annie was also having a bit of a pop at the Bryants directly because their dads had been Quakers and one of them was named Wilberforce after William Wilberforce, the anti-slavery campaigner. So I think that by accusing him of being a slave owner, basically of treating his workers like slaves, she was having a right old go there. Because that was something that she'd done before. She'd taken on causes in that very middle-class way that people did in those days, of going directly to the employer, trying to embarrass the employer, trying to get them to put in improvements, but kind of over the head, not really involving the workers, because, you know, working-class people, a bit unpredictable. So they, that's how they would do things. They would organise boycotts. And I think that's what she aimed to do, was pissed the Bryants off sufficiently that they would sue her for libel over this article, she then would have a platform in court to talk about conditions. She would defend herself. She'd done this before in libel cases. And she could talk about conditions in the factory and embarrass them and put them under pressure that way. Didn't quite happen like that. The match women were bullied extensively by the Bryants by their foreman, who the foreman used to hit them. They were very violent to the match women in this huge factory on the Fairfield Road. Does anyone know the factory, Fairfield Road in Bow? It looks like a gothic castle, doesn't it? It's amazing looking. Now it's got a bistro and a gym and a swimming pool. The match women would be like, what? People are queuing to get in now. They were queuing to get out in those days. But they came to the women and said, we've seen this article written by Annie Besson, and we know that some of you have talked to her because the information's too good, it's too accurate. Who was it? It's like that awful moment at school when the headmistress says, one of you, one boy or girl, has done this, and you're all going to stay behind until somebody owns up. But what they did was to put out a pre-printed statement in every workroom, they're all different workrooms, saying, you know, we're absolutely fabulously happy here. We love working for Brian and May. It's amazing. Um, and this journalist has lied, but they absolutely refused to do it, every single one of them. So what information was she giving in white slavery in London? She first of all tells us that you could tell, this is a photograph you might know, it's the most well-known photograph of the women actually on strike outside that building um, in Bow. You could tell by looking at them the tactics that Bryant and May had employed. The company had become, it become a limited firm in 1884, four years before this, that actually managed to force down wages. So they were lower in 1888 than they had been 10 years previously. And Annie Besant said, you can tell this when you look at the, the women, the girls, because even for working class East End young people, they look incredibly frail. They're very small. They're very pale. They don't look remotely well. And some of them, because they were so young, who should have been hitting puberty while they were working, because of these terribly low wages, just were not able to develop as they should have done. So they were really, really small. They were malnourished, essentially. She wrote about Fossey Jaw. I expect you've all heard about Fossey Jaw, this horrendous industrial disease, just awful which Brian Tomei claims to know nothing about whatsoever, never happens here. But I found, by going through their archives, because bless them, they kept everything, which is a gift for a historian, that they did know about it. They had articles from 1850 in their archives about Fossy Jaw and white phosphorus. So what it did, as you may well know, was it would begin with toothache, your face would swell, your jaw would begin to decay while you were alive, abscesses would form in your gums, Bits, sorry, that's before lunch, isn't it? Um, bits, of, bits of bone the size of peas. You'd be spitting out your own... I mean, it's just horrific, isn't it? Your own jawbone while you were still alive. 
And apparently the saddest thing about it, we find from subsequent factory inspectors, was the odour. You can imagine you're sort of decaying. Um, was so awful that people couldn't bear to have family members sometimes under their roof because they would be living in one room. And it was just so horrible that they found fa- uh, match workers living on the outskirts of towns and cities in the last awful stages of the disease. So Brian and May then pressure the girls. That doesn't work. They then sack one girl, a pale little person in black, who I believe was called Eliza Martin, and sack her on a pretext. They underestimated their workforce bigly there, as Mr. Trump would say, because instead of being terrified by this and you know giving in and signing this statement, they put down their tools and almost as one, they streamed out of the factory and out onto Fairfield Road and out onto the Bow Road. Throughout the course of that day, they actually got the whole factory out on strike because people were working different shifts. They made an awful lot of commotion in the East End as well. You didn't have Twitter then or Facebook. I'm a historian, I know these things. But the equivalent of that was just to walk around the streets singing and making a commotion, attracting people to come out and see what was going on. And I'm afraid they sung some very disrespectful songs about their employers. I'm afraid not nice at all. Along the lines of, we'll hang old Bryant from a sour apple tree. It's not good, is it? To the tune of John Brown's body. So people come out and say, what are you doing down there? And they say, well, we're the match girls, aren't we, from up the road? And um, we're being so badly treated. We're being pressured. So we've gone out on strike. And people would throw down money. And that was their first strike funds. They'd catch them. You see those aprons that they're wearing. They'd hold out their aprons. They'd catch the money, devise their own strike fund, their own mass meetings as well. Annie Besson, nowhere to be seen by her own admission. She said she was working in her offices a couple of days later. Big commotion downstairs. Doesn't know what's going on. A gaggle of um, you know, rough-looking girls outside asks them what on earth's going on or sends down a note to inquire and finds out they're the matchman and they're on strike. You would think the fact that she'd written that in her journals would have persuaded historians that she didn't lead the strike because, you know, I've been a slightly incompetent strike leader in my time, but I've generally known when my workers, when my union members were actually on strike. So they just got on with it and they'd been on strike before. This isn't, people think this is the first strike by them or even the first strike by women or even one of the first strikes ever, I suppose, because the the, the connection between strike and match is lovely. I wish it was that. It's not. It's to do with the print trade, unfortunately. They'd been on strike before. It was the only weapon they had as working class women. Why not withdraw your labour? You were treated so badly. You could get another absolutely shocking exploitative job in the jam factory up the road if you were sacked. It was the only weapon they had and they used it extremely well. They went to Parliament. They met with MPs. And originally, the tide was very much against them. The local papers were saying, oh, this is shocking. You know, Brian and Mayer, they're gentlemen. They've got top hats and everything. And these terrible women who are lucky to have a job are going on strike. How very dare they? But by meeting with MPs, one of the girls who was about 12, when she got in the room with the MPs, and she would never have talked to anyone like this on equal terms in her life before, but she seized the moment, swept off her bonnet, and showed that she was bald on her head, on top of her head, from carrying a pallet of mat on her head since she was an infant, basically, a very young girl. And that really shocked them because they probably had daughters at home, same age, with lovely ringlets and, you know, a maid to comb out their hair. And it was just a brilliant political gesture, no Annie Besant involved. So long story short, pressure grows on Bryant and May. They have to concede to the women's demands. They are so not happy about it. Right through decades later in their archives, you can see them going... And the strike was completely unnecessary, completely unnecessary. They never got hurt. It's like, guys, let it go. But they didn't. They never did. They were so furious. This wasn't supposed to happen. The women that they called a rough set of girls, and mostly Irish, for God's sake, um, Irish in those days considered uh, to be black, considered to be a Negroid race is the beginning of eugenics and all the horrors of that, so really, really looked down on, were not supposed to best posh blokes who owned country estates. This was just horrifying. They never recovered. 
They went back to work. They formed the largest union of women and girls in the country, and that's the strike committee with Annie Besant in white, in a pale dress at the lectern. That's Herbert Burroughs of the Fabian Society next to her. It's not a very hirsute match woman with a moustache. Some people have wondered, but no, that is the, the token man in the picture there is Herbert Burroughs of the Fabian Society. So it's a huge union, and it completely influences everything that comes after. Of course, exploited workers of the East End, these people are not stupid. They know they're exploited, they know they were, and they won. This had not happened before. They won the right to unionise, better paying conditions, a separate dining room so they could eat out of the fumes of white phosphorus, which would settle on the bits of probably stale bread they bought in from home and, and have an easy route into their mouths. These were big concessions. These were not concessions that working people got. So, of course, the dockers went, fair enough, we'll ask them how to do it. And speakers from the match women went down, they talked to the dockers, the dockers went on strike, huge, like almost a general strike, really, throughout the country. Um, beginning of the modern trade union, political trade union movement that anyone could join. Very different from what went before when it was sort of the aristocrats of labour and the, just the most skilled labourers that were unionising. Interestingly, no match woman ever did fall victim to the Ripper. But after they went back to work, a letter was received at the factory, and it was signed J. Ripper. Now, probably a hoax, but still very interesting. And it was reported in the newspapers that the city police said this death threat has arrived at the factory. And what it said fascinated me. It said, I hear that some of your girls are beginning to say what they will do with me. I am going to pay them a visit. I will see what they have in their stomachs and I will take it out of them. Nice. Very threatening, but also very interesting. He's saying, I'm pissed off with the match women because they're threatening me. They are beginning to say what they will do with me. So essentially they're going, on our manor, you must be bloody joking. Coming round here, killing women in the East End, we're not having it. Perhaps, I mean, we know there were vigilante committees. I can quite see some match women on those vigilante committees. I can quite see, actually, this is my favourite little daydream. Match women pretty handy in a fight. They were the old East End knock a bloke out with one punch women, these were. And they also had hat pins about yay long, which they used to pretty good effect, we're told as well. Do not mess, because you'd have about three hat pins. You know, if you mess dressed to kill, mess with a match woman, get the wrong business end of a, of a hat pin. People died from hat pin murders. I do like to think that perhaps, just perhaps, the reason that the Ripper stopped rippering was that some match women with that unproven, completely unprovable. Historians are not supposed to make stuff up, apparently. But there you go. That would be my fantasy. So just amazing women, and their union survived. It went into the GMB in 1920, which I remind the GMB of every year when I want the funds for my Match Women's Festival. Do come, 29th of June, 2019. It's in Bow. It's right close to the factory, so you can pop out in your lunch break. We'll have some amazing speakers. I should probably make my friend Kate Thompson, who's sitting there, the wonderful author. I should probably drag her in and make her speak. And there'll be all kinds of politicians and writers. It will be fun. And there will be gin cocktails. We have cocktails named after match women. This is a key factor. It's the first time, actually, that I'd organised it in Bow this year, and the venue said, so do your guests drink? I said, they do a bit, yes. I said, however much gin you're thinking of getting, I would double it. And they said, we did, and we run out in two hours. <laughs> shocking, shocking. But this really is the East End spirit, and it never died. It absolutely carried on in the women of the East End. I could trace it back to before, well before the match women and well after as well. One of my favourite East End suffragettes is Adelaide Knight here. I absolutely love Adelaide. Born 1871 in Bethnal Green, disabled from birth, um, very frail, very tiny as well, a really wee little woman under five foot. You know, severe health problems, um, but never let that stop her, was the most incredible activist, was one of the founders of the Canning Town branch of the Women's Social and Political Union, the suffragettes. We tend to hear about Pankhurst, don't we? We tend not to hear that this was a thriving uh, movement in the East End and amongst working class women throughout the country. She was a very smart uh, woman. She was very bright as a child. She loved poetry, music, and history, we're told. And I'm actually going to be very diverse and mention a man. I am. I'm going to mention her husband because I love her husband. 
it's not, I mean, it's been pointed out to me that he was rather handsome. Obviously, I didn't notice that at all. But Donald Adolphus Brown, a fabulous man. Terrible childhood, which I haven't got time to go into. Family from Guyana. Um, and he completely supported her activism. They married in their 20s. He took her surname. And he did the housework. <laughs> amazing, amazing guy. Hashtag couple goals, seriously. In the 1890s, there wasn't a lot of that. But because they had young kids and she was busy saving the world as well as in poor health, he just casually did the childcare and did, did um, the housework for her. She was arrested in 1906 along with Annie Kenny, another working class suffragette who I absolutely fangirled to death. I love, I love her. She's a terrible, shocking, shocking bit of a girl was Annie Kenny in her youth. But again, no time for the gossip. I'll tell you later. She's arrested alongside Annie Kenny. She faced prison. But what the um, court said was you can accept being bound over to keep the peace for a year and you don't have to go to prison. Of course, that would have been great big for them. She doesn't go to prison, which is sort of bad optics, really. And she can't campaign, so it would have shut her up. And she had to discuss this with, with Douglas. They had a chat about it, according to her daughter, who wrote it up. Now, if I'd been her, I think I'd have said, you know, I think I'll accept the binding over thing because I'm extremely, I'm, I'm ill, I'm disabled. I've got two young kids, one's a baby. I think I might sit this one out, really. I mean, good luck, sisters, but, you know. But no, this is a discussion. I'm going to try to get through this without getting a lump in my throat because it's so sweet. So apparently, according to daughter, she said to Douglas, what can I do, Daddy? To draw back will encourage this intimidation of us women. But can I count on your full support? It will be agony to be away from you and our children. But with your full help, I feel I can face this. And he said, oh, I'm going, I'm going. <clears throat> and he said, my dear mama, we have supported each other for many years. We must not fail now that we are to be put to the test. I mean, sob, it's amazing. What an amazing couple. And she said she decided despite her health, I refuse to barter my freedom to act according to my conscience while my health allows me to fight on. She did go to prison. She sang the red flag every day and scratched the words of the red flag into her prison cell with a hairpin. Amazing. She went on to just casually found, be a founder member of the British Communist Party, you know, of an afternoon when she wasn't doing anything else. Her activism never stopped. She didn't die until 1950. I think the fact that he died in 1949, was a, just months before her, was a big factor in her eventual death. So no wonder that Sylvia Pankhurst, that's not Sylvia Pankhurst, obviously that's Sylvia Pankhurst, but no wonder that she actually went to the East End for protection from the women of the East End when she was campaigning. This is very much my interpretation, but I'm sticking with it. She mentioned, people do mention, oh yes, Sylvia Pankhurst um, went to live in the East End for some reason, God knows why, uh, a bit eccentric probably, or like a lot of these suffragettes were. But she says herself in her autobiography, she was constantly being arrested. All, you know, the 1,090 people, including 27 men, well done, brothers, in and out of prison this whole time, being brutally force-fed, their health suffering, terrible conditions. They would release them under what they called the Cat and Mouse Act. Once they looked like they were going to die in prison from hunger striking, they'd release them to get a little bit better and then arrest them again. Whole branch of special branch. Can you say a branch of special branch? Should it be a twig of special branch? I don't know. A part of special branch is watching the suffragettes. 16 police officers are watching the suffragettes and complaining that they can't keep up with them because when we try and follow them in their cars these wretched women put their foot down we can't keep up with them can we have a motorbike? no you can't well we can't couldn't keep up with them so Sylvia is very, very frail. She's very ill. It, you know, this is a war between the state and women. It, you can't overemphasize that. It, people are close to death at this point, and she's very frail. The women of the East End had said to her, Oi, Sylvia, come and, come and stay with us. We'll look after you. And very sensibly, being the best panker, she's the only panker she needs, Sylvia. She's amazing. She says, all right then, yeah, I'll do that. So she goes to live with Jessie Payne. You've been thinking, who is this woman, Louise? This is Jessie Payne. She's a shoemaker. And Sylvia went to live with her and her husband. They had to stop shoemaking because Sylvia was so ill, she had to sleep completely. She was on complete bed rest, so they couldn't be hammering away downstairs. But they did that. They made that sacrifice for Sylvia. 
The police and special branch went all around Old Ford Road to every house overlooking the Ford's house. And they said to people, desperately poor, starving people, we'll give you a load of money if you let us rent out your top rooms for a week or so, because they wanted to see what Sylvia was up to. Every single family said no. Said probably a lot worse than no, actually. <laughs> Told them to, to do one, basically, which I think is incredible. It makes me rather proud of the East Enders. And at one point, they came to arrest Sylvia again. But a bunch of East End housewives, as they were called, that's just women, really, that live in houses, you know, quite, quite a lot of us do, surrounded the Payne's property. And you can just, I can imagine them with their arms crossed and their aprons on. I like to think a rolling pin here or there, like, all right then, yeah, yeah, come on then, you're coming in, are you? And the police apparently just sort of went, no, we're, we're just going to, sort of backed away and went down the pub instead and then kind of fled back to the station. So they absolutely, so this is working class women protecting the Pankhurst. This is not a narrative that we often get. And of course, Sylvia, very active in the, the East London Federation of Suffrage which I love mostly because it's the elves. I just think that's so cute. They weren't particularly cute and sweet little elfy women, but never mind. Another elf and a wonderful fighter was Minnie Lansbury. Minnie Lansbury, like Adelaide, was quite mini. She was really short. Somebody did say to me, is it because you're short, Louise, that you keep pointing this out? But I just think you can see in that photograph that she was a tiny woman and again um, gave up just about everything to fight for the people of the East End. She was in the suffrage movement and she then became a councillor in 1919 for Poplar Council. Poplar had a really unfair burden in those days. It had a huge amount of unemployed people and a very low rateable value. So low income, lots of people to look after. Really unfair, but no one really cared until Minnie and her fellow councillors said, we're not having this, we refuse to impose rates. We're not going to do it. And the government said, well, then you're going to prison. And they said, all right. And they did. They duly did go to prison. Here's Minnie on her way to prison, like a rock star, being greeted by the women of the East End, because they just absolutely adored her, of course, putting her money where her mouth was with absolute principle. She had always been a great supporter of the East Enders. She worked for better housing, for maternity, for child services, for housing inspectors. She'd just been an incredible fighter, and they knew it. The amusing thing about this is that the council continued to operate from prison. They had full council meetings, I guess, in the prison rec area and massive crowds outside calling on them to be released. They were released after six weeks because it was just so embarrassing for the government to have all these respectable councillors banged up in prison. And everything changed. The government rushed through um, an act of parliament pooling local authority funds. Poplar became a quarter of a million pounds better off in that money then, overnight. Absolutely incredible. But sadly, too late for Minnie, who had gone to prison a healthy young woman, caught flu in Christmas of 1921, really weakened by the awful conditions, turned into pneumonia, and she died in 1922 at just 32 years old. To have achieved all that is astonishing. Her death was announced at a mass meeting, and a meeting not to do with her, her but to do with the rates, and um, it was said, the audience for a moment was stricken silent, then out of the silence came a woman's scream of grief, followed by the weeping of many women. The meeting was abandoned, and there were thousands of people at Minnie's funeral. Had she not died, I absolutely guarantee she'd have been at Cable Street in 1936, front and centre against Mosley and his black shirts. Have people heard of the Battle of Cable Street? Something that you would know about pretty well. But again, not always talked about the sheer amount of women that were there at Cable Street having a go at the Nazis and also the police who were having a go at them and protecting the fascists who were trying to walk through. This is Blanche Edwards being arrested. Eight women we think were arrested, and the commentator told a story of being in prison and seeing one of the women dragged in, and the policeman raising his truncheon to strike this woman in the face, and her just facing him down and saying, I am not afraid of you. He didn't. He lost his nerve. He didn't hit her. He called her a Jewish bitch. He threw her into a cell, but she faced him down. I particularly love, there are so many stories I could cable street you all day, but I love the story of Joyce Rosenthal who married a man on the basis that she'd seen him at Cable Street. 
And she, her future husband, Charlie Goodman, climbed up a lamppost. He was 16 years old as a schoolboy. Climbed up a lamppost and said, come on, everybody, don't be yellow bellies. Forward, we are winning. Kind of urged the crowd forward. Beaten up severely by the police for that, because the police were escorting Mosley and the fascists through. And she said, I was only 12 then, but then four years later, she met him again. And she said, here, were you that nutcase up the lamppost? And he said, yes. And she said, well, then I knew he was for me. And they got married. Love that. Love at the barricades. There are many great stories from Cable Street. Here's a woman actually literally, literally built barricades. And here's a, an unknown woman at the barricades there. There were Jewish girls who defied their parents, who said you should not be getting mixed up in this. Do not go out. Do not get involved in this um, huge I mean, it was huge. It was 300,000 people possibly turning back Mosley in the black shirts. But they did. They had pepper in their pockets. They were literally prepared to do battle with Mosley and his black shirts. And these were not nice men, obviously, the black shirts, but they were prepared to fight them. The result, thank God, was a humiliating defeat for Mosley. Eventually, after hours and hours, the police just could not get through. The police got a little bit of um, a critique from the women of the East End as well. They were being quite violent to women below, and East End women apparently emptied their slot buckets out of their windows, and probably worse than slot buckets, actually, um, onto the police. And at one point, the police tried to clear the road, and the women came down from their tenements and chased them off. The police ran into some sheds and then ran out the back way and went home. Alice Hitchens um, was there and told the story of it that I think is um, very moving. They shall not pass was on everyone's lips, the, the, of course the Spanish Civil War, no passeran slogan from that. The sheer scale of numbers meant they couldn't get through. Eventually, after some hours, the word went round that the fascists had been turned back. Everyone was cheering. Where I was, people were dancing and singing and throwing their arms round one another. I think it is essential to fight. You've got to stand up to them. You've got to stop them from marching. I skipped over her, but Sarah Wesker was another amazing um, woman. I cannot find a photograph of her. But her nephew was Arnold Wesker, the playwright, and he based a character in Chicken Soup with Barley, his probably his most famous play, on his auntie. And that's her being played by Samantha Spiro. She was also extremely active um, on the day of Cable Street and a great trade unionist as well. Trade unionism, we know, continues in the East End. We have the workers at um, Dagenham Ford, the amazing women. You've probably seen Made in Dagenham, that fantastic film about it. Striking because they were paid 15% less than men who were doing like work. The strike led by Rose Boland, Eileen Pullen, Vera Syme, Gwen Davis and Sheila Douglas. The government actually intervened. They made such a kerfuffle. They got such amazing press that, again, it was embarrassing. This is what often motivates disputes being settled. The strike ended in three weeks. And it was just incredible that the pay rate went up. The result, ultimately, is the Equal Pay Act of 1970. And that's East End Women. What done that? Amazing. Just to finish on, that's Marla Sen, who became a very famous playwright and novelist. But originally a Bengali woman, she eloped to London in 1965, arrived, started working as a seamstress in the East End to pay the bills, and was really shocked by the racism that she encountered as an Asian woman and by what the Asian community faced there. So very quickly, adopting the East End woman persona, she decides not to just do nothing about that, but writes articles, um, writing in the journal Race Today, explaining how awful things were for sweated Bangladeshi workers in the East End, that they worked in sweatshops, living in dormitories where beds were shared around the clock, and awful conditions. And then so she worked by day, she actually worked for Air India on the ticketing desk at Air India. But by night, she and activists like Darkus Howe actually had like a vigilante um, committee really protects people of the East End, going around making sure that people were safe from the um, early Nazi um, anti-immigrant groups there. Founded the Bengali Housing Action Group and was instrumental in drawing up the plans to make Brick Lane a safe Bangladeshi heartland for the community in Britain. 
Later, as I say, became very famous as a screenwriter and novelist, but I like what she said about her activism. When you're an activist, you empower other people to take their chance to empower themselves. So she really wanted everyone to see what one woman could do, what individuals can do. We're often told, well, you can't do anything if you're one person. It's impossible. But all our women showed that they could, especially by uniting with others. I'm going to do a little bit of a plug because... I'll explain why. The last time I gave that talk on Cable Street was um, in an event a couple of, three weeks ago, I guess three, four weeks ago, for Bookmarks, the bookshop by the British Museum. Now, you may have heard it got attacked by some Nazis, by some neo-Nazis, 12 of them with Make America Great Again, Make make Britain Great Again, red baseball caps, because very British baseball caps, aren't they? Turned, Kate turned up at the shop when it was closing, trashed the place, basically. So we had a solidarity event. I talked about Cable Street. Someone live-streamed my talk, and some Nazis turned up to say hello. Some actual, genuine neo-Nazis. There aren't here. I've checked. There's none of them here today. They wouldn't pay to get in. They're too tight. But I happened to be outside. Words were exchanged. I think it is fair to say that words were exchanged. And um, we, <clears throat> they wanted to come in. I, you know, there's just no way. There? There's, there's children. There were children in the building. There were Holocaust survivors. It wasn't happening. So a few of us, actually a lot of mums in summer dresses and flip-flops, the film of it's quite hilarious. We're sort of handbagging them down the road. We sort of saw them off down Shaftesbury Avenue. But I ended up on, on a bit of a Nazi hit list because of that. And... Um, I was circuit. My photograph was circulated on the Nazi dark web, dark ages web, more likely. But apparently, this is a thing, and this happens. So I think really we need to be aware. History does repeat. This is happening again. The rise of the far right is extremely dangerous. We are pretty much back at Cable Street. So I'm going to plug this event that I'm definitely going to go to, which is a national demonstration against fascism and racism. I'll leave some over there on the table if that's all right. Painstakingly printed at home. That has run me out of yellow ink. I'm done now completely. But I think, you know, in the spirit of our East End women, we should all be there and show them that they're not taking over our streets of London and of the East End. Thank you. Thanks very much. And that was Louise Raw at the Whitechapel Society 1888's Victims Conference. We would like to thank Louise Raw, Steve Ratty, Frog Moody, Ruby Vitorino, and the Committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about their future meetings, purchase books, and subscribe to their Whitechapel Society journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you'll find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. <laughs>